we still our hearts again tonight and we acknowledge again that we are when it's all said and done and the dust is settled we're just creatures of dust fashioned by your hand for great purposes and we know the scripture says that when you created us you breathed into us a breath of life you gave us a spirit and then through what Jesus did on the cross and at the resurrection you gave your Holy Spirit to live with my spirit to live in our spirit so that we could know him and make him known so that we could have the type of influence in our time that Jesus had in his I ask you again tonight, Lord, not to let anything that I say get in the way of what you want said to these great folks. And I pray that, Lord, you will cause us when we leave this place to go out inspired, encouraged, informed, and able to do the one thing we couldn't do better in heaven, which is to make your name famous in the earth. So help us, Lord, tonight to put aside distractions. It is a Sunday evening. We were tired. But, Lord, I pray that we'll be able to focus in on what you might want to say to us because the very moment we tune out might be the one moment you had something just for us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The late, great Muhammad Ali reportedly sat on a plane in first class Seatbelt recli seat back reclined, seatbelt unfastened, sipping a Coke. And the steward came to him and she said, Sir, I must ask you to fasten your seatbelt. We're about to take off. She came back a few minutes later. Ali hadn't moved a muscle. Sir, I really must ask you. We're about to push back for takeoff. You need to fasten your seatbelt. She came back a few minutes later still when she'd finished all of her cabin duties. Ali was still in the same position. Seat back reclined, seat belt unfastened, sipping a Coke. Sir, I must insist at this moment you fasten your seat belt. We are about to leave. Ali looked up at her with that sly grin of his and that mischievous glint in his eye, and he grunted, <laughs> Ma'am, Superman don't need no seat belt. And I just wish I was half as quick as that young steward. She drew herself up to five foot four inches tall. She looked down at the world heavyweight champion and she said, Sir, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> and that's what I call being on the front foot being proactive, being ready for whatever the past or the present or the future throws at you. And the attitude of that young steward often puts into my mind the thought, thoughts about the, a Bible prophet called Nehemiah. He was definitely on the front foot when it came to the future and the present, both of his life and the life of his nation. If you don't know the story, he served a king called Artaxerxes I, the king of Persia, 
in the fifth century BC. He was part of what we call the diaspora of Jews after the fall of that city under King Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a good chance that Nehemiah had never actually seen the city of Jerusalem. And yet he kept his ear to the ground. He knew exactly what was going on in his homeland. He served as cupbearer to the king. Now, cupbearer wasn't just a combination of wine connoisseur, head waiter and drink taster. He didn't just protect the king's table. He protected the king's life. Because death by poisoning was a favorite way at the time of dispatching with unpopular monarchs. And during his service at court, Nehemiah became increasingly vexed, saddened, moved by reports of the destruction of Jerusalem. Its walls were broken. Its defenses were down. It was constantly open to incursions by thieves and enemies of the state. And Nehemiah felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to approach the greatest king in the world at the time for permission to oversee the rebuilding of the walls. Now remember in doing this, Nehemiah was a refugee. He essentially had no rights. He had been taken captive. His people had been captured and taken away from their homeland. And here he is asking the greatest king of the time for permission to go and rebuild the walls of a city that had once been a threat to the king of Persia. And in rebuilding the walls, Nehemiah wasn't just rebuilding a fence, a, a concrete structure or something. Nehemiah was actually restoring the soul of a nation. He was giving it back its confidence. The confidence on which it would build its economy. You know, even today, confidence is absolutely essential to any economy, whether it's the dollar, the pound, the yen, the euro, any economy relies on confidence. In fact, it's true to say that the essential currency in all economies is trust. When trust breaks down, it's almost impossible to trade. It's impossible for banks to do their job. Everything relies on trust and confidence. Nehemiah was doing more than building a wall. And the end result of Nehemiah's work was that the wall was fully restored in a fairly short space of time. And on that day, it says in Nehemiah 12, the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. People could hear the people of God celebrating from afar. A party was going on in Israel and everybody got to hear it. Now I think Nehemiah in many ways is the prophet for today. For two reasons. First of all, because he was an innovator. What you see when you come to church on a Sunday up here is a great expression of creativity. Do you agree? Great music, good media, good sound systems. Thank God for this wonderful venue that you have. Which first time I came here, it had just been transformed from a roller skating rink to a church. That's a long time ago. But a lot's happened since then in this wonderful place. And you see this creativity and you think, that's wonderful, I can't do that. But this is not innovation. Innovation is the practical application of creativity to solve practical problems. What you're sitting on is innovation. Someone solved the problem. You needed to be able to sit, not stand all the way through service. Someone met that relatively comfortably. 
That's innovation. Nehemiah was an innovator, someone who applied creativity to solve practical problems. And you know, in that respect, he's often, I think, most like Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't just a prophet, and he wasn't just a great teacher, a rabbi. Jesus was also an innovator. We forget how practical Jesus was sometimes. We think he's so spiritual, he rides along two inches off the ground, never touched by the problems we have, saying things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, and speaking like that. That's not Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Gospels. Jesus solved problems. Imagine you're a blind person begging at the side of the road. There's no social net to look after you. There's no NHS to look after you. You can't get a job. You can't start a business. You might have great dreams. They will never be realized. You may not even be able to lead a family. And in one act of healing... Jesus solves every one of those practical problems. And we could go through all the miracles of Jesus tonight and demonstrate how they were actually innovation, the solving of practical problems. So I suggested this morning, the kingdom of God doesn't just produce preachers. God help us, it's a good thing it doesn't. Where would we be if everybody tried to be a preacher? I wouldn't even like that. True. I spend half of my time in church world and half in the media and I can tell you there are times I'd rather be in the other half. Because people just need so much, don't they? And we have something to give them. Not arrogantly. But the kingdom of God also produces technologists and managers and tradespeople and craftspeople and architects and designers and engineers and personal assistants and furniture designers and, and uh, entertainers and lawyers and entrepreneurs and healthcare professionals, all of them with just one goal, and that is to extend the, the, the reach of the kingdom of God, the influence of Jesus' rule in the earth. The other reason I think Nehemiah is the prophet for today is that he understood how to overcome Opposition. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 9, Nehemiah writes, Our enemies were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I pray, he said, now strengthen my hands. In Nehemiah 1.15, he says, so the wall was completed. And when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid. They lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Amen. About 12 years ago, I wrote a book called The Church of 2020. It's very simple. It just looked at what kind of, what kind of Christians would have influence by the year 2020. And uh, I looked back over it the other week and at least some of what I said was absolutely right, thankfully. But I was commissioned just not long ago to write an article for a magazine about the church in 2040. What would the church be like 20 years from now? I mean, the influential church. What would it look like? What technologies would it use? What values would it hold? And as I wrote that, I became more and more impressed with the idea that one of the most defining aspects of the church going forward will be how it deals with opposition. I believe there's every likelihood, and this is based on a lot of research, that the present shifts we see in social attitudes and ethics may lead over the next decade or so to a rise in opposition to, our, to faith generally and, and perhaps particularly Christianity. 
Now, I don't want to alarm you. There's a reason I'm saying this. We'll come to that. On one level, that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus promised us that opposition was a normal part of a life of faith. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present life, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. Now, you say, where's my hundred times? Where's my hundred brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers? Look around you. The church is the fulfillment of that promise. But he also promised persecutions. Now I realize that word is a problem for some of us. Because when we think of persecution, we think of one type of opposition. We think of people being killed for their faith. And many people are, as we'll see in a moment today. But it's important to understand Jesus wasn't saying that that would happen to every Christian. He was promising that every Christian would have opposition. So it's not terribly alarming that I should say maybe we'll see more opposition because it's part of the promise of Jesus it's not a comfortable one for the purposes of this talk tonight I'm using opposition to refer to the general phenomenon and persecution to refer to one type of opposition and we're not talking about people who just don't like you I have people in my world who obviously just, they don't like me. They don't, I don't know, it's the way you do your hair, tone of your voice, the color of your socks, something. The type of music you listen to. They just don't like it. They'd rather have Vivaldi than death metal. Do you understand? That's not what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about people who oppose you because of your faith. And what it does to your beliefs and your practices. And can I add here that if faith makes no difference to your practices, you probably don't have much faith or you're not living a life of faith. It will make a difference. It's dangerous to follow Jesus. It's not easy and it's not safe. He's a dangerous person to follow. Let me tell you, it's the truth. If you really follow Jesus, if you really live Christianity the way it's in the Gospels, you will not be living like most people you know. I, I can't apologize for saying that because that's the gospel. And opposition usually takes three forms. And I'll just touch on these quickly before we look at how to overcome opposition, which is the main theme tonight. The first type of opposition, and I need to do this because some of you are in these categories right now. I need to locate you for, the, for, the, for what's to come. Personal opposition. Institutional opposition. And what we're going to call systemic or society-wide opposition. Personal opposition. Opposition that comes to you as an individual from family members, from friends, from colleagues, from people in your immediate world. Some of you have experienced that. Many of you, I think. Some of you are in the midst of it tonight. And it's often expressed through things like false accusation. He said this, you didn't. She said that, you didn't. Innuendo, rumour. The denial of opportunities that are open to others. Someone else is promoted at work, you don't get it. Why? Because of your faith. Bullying and harassment. Do you know a few years ago, nine out of ten school children in the UK say that either experienced bullying in school or been a witness to it. Sometimes personal 
Opposition is expressed in pressure to conform to the ways of the world around you. I think we've all faced that. Usually, conformity is the antithesis of Christianity. Because Romans 12 says, don't be conformed. But there's only one form of conformity that we're allowed and encouraged to engage in, and that is conformity to the image of Christ. According to the Bible, in Romans 8, 29, we are to be conformed to the image of God's Son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In other words, Jesus is the template. He's the model of a whole new kind of humanity that starts with you and me. So every trial we go through and every opposition we face is meant to, at least in part, create in us more of this conformity to Jesus, to make us more like Jesus. Then there's institutional opposition, where opposition to people on the basis of their faith becomes part of the culture of a business or a university or a school or an organization of some kind. We see that today with some universities that are no platforming speakers because they don't like what that speaker is saying. It happened to me twice, I won't go into the details. Um, it was for something that I had written 15 years before in an article, and by the way, it was a very well-reasoned, I thought, well-reasoned article, and it was quoted by others. And, and But the subject I was going to speak to the students, the National Union of Students leadership about, had nothing to do with that. It was about the future of the country and where we were going and all the opportunities that technology gave us. But So I, know, I just say that because I know what it, it is to have this happen. What it does is denies to students the right to debate ideas, which is one of the great gifts, was to me when I was at university, of study, the ability to debate ideas. But it can also be expressed in denial of opportunity, again, denial of expression. Do you remember a British nurse a few years ago was denied the right to wear a cross to work and they took her case to the European Court of Appeal and the court said she has a right to wear a cross because it's a fundamental human right to express religious faith. Now the point wasn't just that you can, you can be a Christian and not wear a cross. It was not essential to Christianity that you wear a piece of jewellery. The point was that other people were being allowed to wear symbols of their faith. Are you with me tonight? Then we have systemic opposition, which most of us think of as persecution. This is where opposition, left unchecked, moves up the chain till it becomes society-wide. And it's expressed in all the things we've already mentioned, but you can add a few more, like the denial of the right to work the denial to build a house or start a business, the denial of expression of ideas, the denial of freedom to congregate for worship, the denial of the right to read scriptures in public places and sometimes in private too. The, finally, the denial to life itself, the right to life, killing people for their faith. And I was asked by the BBC a few years ago, you know, do you think Christians are persecuted in the UK, and I said no, because none of these things are happening to most of us. But they are happening to other people. This year, Open Doors, the mission organization, published a new report in which it said 260 million Christians in 50 countries are experiencing high or extremely high levels of persecution. That's up from 245 million a year ago. 
We don't see that in the UK and we should pray that we never do. But there are types of opposition that are on the rise. Consider the woke culture tonight. Have you heard of wokeness? Come on. How many have heard of four people? Okay, I'll explain it. That's fine. Woke is just an idea people use. It's kind of a cool word for being awoken, waking up. And so anybody that kind of supports certain kinds of issues is calling themselves woke because they've woken up and the rest of you are asleep. That's the idea. Wokeness is essentially a new form of political correctness and sometimes its motives are good. It wants to stop people from offending minorities. That's a good thing. Sometimes it, it wants to uh, protect the vulnerable. That's a good thing. The problem is not with the intent, it's with the execution because instead of breeding tolerance, it breeds a new form of intolerance. It says, I won't engage with anybody who doesn't agree with me, who doesn't see things. I won't even talk to you. You're not woke. You don't believe me. President Obama said at a speech to his foundation late last year, I hope you get over the woke thing very quickly, he said. Because he said, if you're only willing to engage with those who agree with you, you can never engage in activism. Because activism means talking to people who don't agree with you. I personally think Christians ought to be the best at that. Engaging with, we're not always, but we ought to be the best at engaging with people who don't agree with us. Because in Luke 6, Jesus said, what credit is, credit is it to you if you love those who love you? What good is it if you... If you give to those who can give back to you. He said, I want you to love your enemies. Give to those who can't give to you. Now that's not woke at all. That's completely different. Thankfully, the Bible doesn't just promise us there'll be opposition. It promises how to deal with it. It shows us how to deal with it. I just want to give you a couple of quick things to think about for this week going forward so that you can be like that young stewardess on the front foot. Superman don't need no plane. First thing we need to do. You ready for this? Anybody here tonight? Yes. We can talk about something else if you like. I don't mind. First thing we need to do to deal with opposition to our faith. Remember, we're not talking about people who just don't like you. We need to engage with the problems around us. It's really hard, you know, to oppose someone who is constantly solving your problems. Have you ever noticed that? It's hard to not like someone a little bit who's always solving problems for you. It can be done, but it's not easy. Nehemiah was a problem solver. I think today the, the power of innovation trumps the power of qualification. Everybody through the internet and so on knows at least a little bit about a lot. It's not important anymore. It's not impressive how much you know. What impresses people is that you can take what you know and add value with it. Now, there's nothing wrong with qualification. Don't misunderstand me. I honor people who have educational qualifications. I work with a lot of them. I, I love that. But listen, that's not as impressive as it once was because now people are looking for the power of innovation. How can you add value to human beings and the environment through what you know? Nehemiah could have left that responsibility 
to someone else. He could have said, I've got a comfortable job with the king. He put his life on the line to innovate. And I want you to notice that he was rebuilding walls, not the temple. I, I've met Christians, maybe you have, maybe I've been like this. I, I, I suppose I have at some point, but I hope not. Who won't do a practical thing because they don't think it has any spiritual significance. I'll gladly invest in something so long as it has a, something spiritual we can talk about in church on Sunday. But as I said this morning, decisions about better education are not made in church on Sunday. Decisions about better health care are not made in church on Sunday. It was because of Nehemiah's work on the wall that the scribe Ezra and the priests had the security to institute worship again. There had been no worship in Jerusalem for decades because they weren't safe. They couldn't gather together. Nehemiah creates that. Do you know that every good work you do as a Christian, every practical thing you do in Christ's name has a spiritual significance? In Matthew 10, Jesus said, if you give even a cup of cold water in my name, you do it unto me and you will be rewarded. Mother Teresa, one of my all-time heroes, and I'm sure for many of you, you feel the same. She constantly rejected claims that she was a social worker. The media used to say, she's a great social worker, and she would rebuff that. I'm not a social worker, she would say. I'm a servant of Christ. She said, Jesus stands behind every poor person I meet waiting to be served by me. Engagement is at the heart of the gospel. I was saying to Pastor Dave over lunch that all evangelism is mission, but not all mission is evangelism. We don't feed the poor in India or give to feeding the poor in India because we want to evangelize them. That's not our primary reason. Our primary reason is we do it because it models the heart of the gospel that God loves people. Jesus didn't insist that people subscribe to his theology before he would heal them. Now, Bartimaeus, you've been blind a long time. Is that right? Okay, just before I pray for you, can we do a little checklist? Peter, can I have the list? Thanks. First of all, Bartimaeus, do you, do you believe that, that I am the son of a virgin? Struggling a bit with that? Okay. Do you, Bartimaeus, believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Can you get your head around? Do you like, is that okay? All right, you're more comfortable with that one. That's, that we'll give that one a tick, shall we? Do you believe that I will die for the sins of the entire world and rise again on the third day? Not sure? Warm? No, we'll give that half a tick. Sorry, Bartimaeus, on the basis of your theology, I can't do anything for you today. Jesus didn't ask people to sign up to his theology before he did something good for them. He healed them because it modeled the father heart of God. Thank you for your applause, but you're using up my time. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a long held dream? Is there something in you that meets a practical need, but you haven't done it because you don't think it has some spiritual significance? I'll tell you tonight, you won't face opposition just because you're spiritual. You'll face it because you can meet practical needs. A friend of mine, I have one friend, 
in America, ran, uh, has, was uh, the, the general manager of one of the largest Christian media agencies in the United States for many years, working under a CEO who's a friend of mine and a real man of God. And this managing director, who's also a friend, rang me one time and said, Mal, for years I've had this thing in my heart that I need to have my own agency. And I, 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 there's a, something I want to do with it. There's a certain type of media representation I want to bring to certain ministries, like Joyce Meyer was one of them, and there were others as well. He said, I, 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 I don't know whether I should do it. This is very secure. I'm not at the age where you normally step out of the boat and try something new. And we had a long conversation. I said to him at the end, I said, listen, do you really want to get to 70 years of age and look back and say, I wonder what would have happened if I had done this? On the basis of that simple premise and some advice from others, he stepped out of the boat. And today he does lead, on his own right, one of the largest agencies in the United States. It's having a great effect for the kingdom of God. He just decided, I'm going to take this one thing that meets a practical need. I'm going to do it. We meet opposition engaging with the problems around us. You might say, well, how do I know what I want to do is God's will? Listen, school homework can't be corrected unless it's attempted. When you're in school, you bring the teacher your homework. The homework is corrected. But if you don't attempt the homework, there's nothing to correct. God, being the great teacher that he is, waits for me to bring my homework. What are you thinking, son? What steps are you taking? Let me see. The steps of a good person, says Psalm 37, are directed by the Lord. Not the sitting on the chair waiting for something to happen of a good person. You've got to take a, a risk. You've got to take a step of faith. I believe this is for someone in this room tonight. We will not face opposition just by sprouting spiritual cliches. We will do it by meeting the needs, the practical needs of people. I'm not just talking about the poor here. Though. That's important. I'm talking about everybody has practical needs. How do we deal with opposition quickly? We stand firm. What does 1 Corinthians 16 say? Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Ephesians 6.13. Take up the whole armor of God and having done all, stand. When the dust settles, let's make sure we're the ones still standing. That's what he's saying. And what do we stand on? We don't stand on our experience. Oh, I had this wonderful experience and that's what I'm standing on. That's not what we stand on because experience can be faked. Maybe not by you, but by the enemy. It's not experience you stand on. It's the word of God. When Nehemiah rebuilt the walls, he was standing on promises made to prophets centuries before about the fall and re-emergence of Jerusalem. Some of us today, we stand on our emotions and in the words of Paul in Ephesians 4, we become like infants, tossed about, blown about by every wind of new teaching, influenced, he said, by people who try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Can I say to you tonight, let your revelation shape your conviction, not the other way around. Some Christians today accept all kinds of moral positions on important issues that run completely counter to the Word of God. The theology is shaped by their experience. Now, I'm not saying that you have to become legalistic to express truth. That's far from the Scriptures. But if you study the life of Jesus, he didn't bandy about the bushes when it came to, look, this is the way. And I want to help you get to it. Someone once said, Jesus says to us all, come as you are. He does. 
but he doesn't want you to stay that way. He doesn't want you to stay that way because he wants you to come to maturity. He wants me to come to maturity. And I'm not there yet and I've got a long way to go, but I'm probably a little closer than I was when I was 11 years of age and gave my life to Jesus. Do you know the natural universe is governed by natural laws? If I stand on the top of this building tonight and throw myself off, at the very least I will be injured. I might even hurt someone else because of the law of gravity. It's not a law because some human government said this will be a law. It's a law because it describes the way things normally work in a natural universe. But we also live in a moral universe that has moral principles. At times in the Bible they're called moral laws. They're not laws because some old guy in the Old Testament said let's set this as a law to stop anybody having any fun. They're laws because they describe what happens in a moral universe. So if someone, if I tell a lie, I will be hurt and so will other people. If someone commits adultery, they will be hurt and so will other people because it's a moral universe. God's truth is a bit like the walls of this building, which you didn't even notice until I just said that. But where would you be without them? They give you shelter from the elements. They give you privacy. They define a space in which we can have a rich experience of God. That's what God's laws are like. His moral injunctions are like walls in a building. They give us a space that's safe. And we'll mess up. We all make mistakes. We can't even keep our own standards, much less God's. But he wants us to keep trying by his grace. So we don't stand on our experience. We stand on the word of God. And here's the final thing we do. To face opposition. This one is so important. I left it till last because it might be the one thing you remember. I hope not, but it might be. If we want to stand up to opposition that we face now or in advance of now into the future, if we want to be ready should it occur on any level, and it will at some time, we need to travel light. The very beginning of, or near the beginning of his ministry, Jesus called the 12 disciples together and he sent them out on their first missions trip to preach the gospel in his name, to cast out demons and heal people. He gave them an instruction, which by the way, he repeated not long after when he sent out 72 other disciples, a bigger group, to do the same thing. He gave them exactly the same instruction, so it's important. He said, don't take any extra bag, any extra sandals. If someone welcomes you, stay with them until you leave that town. What was he saying to these disciples? Guys, travel light. I think there's nothing that saps our strength in opposition times like unresolved frustration where our expectation doesn't match our experience. We expected something, but we got something less. That's very frustrating, and it saps our strength. And I think for us as Christians, one of the greatest causes of frustration is where we want, where we want in the here and now what only heaven can provide. Do you know, not even the greatest business deal is going to leave you feeling totally fulfilled. 
not even the most intimate friendship or marriage will totally fill your desire for intimacy. There are some things that cannot, even in an age of instant gratification, cannot be experienced fully in this life. You can taste heaven now. That's what healing is. It's the Lord saying, you're healed. This is what I'm like. This is what heaven is like. There's no sickness. Every miracle of provision is a reminder that there's an age where we won't have any needs. No poverty, no sickness, no dying, no crying, no more pain. Wow. I can taste heaven now, but it's still just a taste. And sometimes we do want in the here and now what only heaven can provide. There was a philosopher called Pascal. I know you've all read him recently. He said this. I haven't. I haven't read him recently. But he said this. We are never living but hoping to live. Whilst we are always preparing to be happy, it is certain we shall never be so if we aspire to no other happiness than what can be enjoyed in this life. You too said it rather more memorably when they said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's the same thing. Both sets are Christian saying the same thing. I've got good things, but it's not everything I'm looking for. I can't have it yet. As long as I live in this fallen world, part of me remains broken, waiting to be mended, ladies and gentlemen. There's a yearning in me. There's a hunger in me. for something I can't really have yet in all of its fullness. And real faith has a great capacity for delayed gratification. Real faith acknowledges the truth of Hebrews 11, that people of faith do not always receive in this life what was promised. This is the scripture. They see it from a distance and they welcome it. I know for a fact that some of the things I've been talking about for some years now in terms of the church's engagement in society will probably not happen in my lifetime. Does that bother me? Yes. Do I wish it was different? Yes. Am I willing to accept it? Yes. Because the most important thing is not that I get to see it, but that it happens. And people might say, you know, you've got no faith because, you know, you're seeing things afar off. Why aren't you confessing them now? Well, you can confess them till your teeth fall out. God's timing is God's timing. He will do it, but he doesn't say, I'm wearing the same Rolex as you, the same timepiece as you. I will give you what the desires of your heart, but not always when you expect them. In a world where I'm encouraged to feel every hunger, to achieve immediate gratification for every need, it's worth remembering there's a blessedness, according to Jesus, that comes for going on hungering for something this world cannot provide. Blessed are those who hunger, keep hungering, and thirsting for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Let me say it this way. The lower your heart investment in things or status, the higher will be your tolerance to the loss thereof. It's a lot easier to face opposition, ladies and gentlemen. Never easy, but it's easier if you don't have a big stake to protect in terms of stuff. How can you obey? How can I obey God's call to go if I'm tied up with stuff? Is there anything wrong with things? No. As long as they're the servant in this relationship. Is there anything wrong with technology? I'm a futurist. No, as long as it's the servant 
in this relationship? How can I obey God's call to give if I'm so tied up with things and stuff and then my security? For a Christian opposition is part of the walk of faith. So people experience it in different ways. The opposition you face may be personal, friends, family, colleagues. It may be institutional. You're in a business or a school or a university that just puts pressure on you all the time because of your faith. Or it could be systemic. Maybe you live in a country or know someone who does where there's society-wide persecution. There's essentially no freedom to worship. To overcome oppositions, in some cases, perhaps prevent them, we need to find creative ways to engage the world with its problems, to keep standing firm on the Word of God. And we need to travel light. That last one is really important. We need to travel light. Father, we thank you tonight that we live in a country where we can do this. We pray for our brothers and sisters in countries around the world that cannot do this. They can't gather to hear the word of God or to worship as we have done tonight. We pray that you will give them great grace, unusual miracles, great perseverance and resilience beyond the norm that they may stand and having done all to stand. Help us, Lord. As blessed as we so often are in this life, help us to keep hungering for things this life can't give, to keep thirsting for things this world with its wonderful blessings can't give help us Lord to be able to face opposition because we're not tied down with a big stake in what we're going to lose help us to face opposition Lord knowing that we can stand on the word not just our experience that that is wonderful on the word of God which never changes help us Lord to face opposition by engaging the practical needs of our society and our world. Some of us can do it in our workspaces. We can design solutions to problems that no one's ever seen before. You'll give us wisdom. You'll give us inventive ideas. You're the greatest creator there is. For some of us, Lord, you'll give us practical solutions to problems just in our everyday life just in things we do for people. We pray that we will always stand firm for you, Jesus. Always. And for those who are going through opposition right now, I pray there'll be a great sense of peace in this moment. I sense your spirit here right now, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll put the Prince of Peace as peace. My peace I leave with you not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Let that peace fill hearts and minds who need it, not just now in this moment, but tomorrow when they really need it.
Tuesday when they really need it. You're not the God of Sunday. You're the God of every day. And I ask you now for anyone who doesn't know Jesus. We spend so many years, some of us, and even those of us who've been Christians a long time, we all make mistakes still. We jump back in the driver's seat and we think, I know where to go now. I know what to do. And we end up down dead-end streets, totally frustrated. Help us to get out of the driver's seat and let you, Jesus, take over. You're the only one that knows where we're meant to go. You're the only one who knows why we were born and not one of us wants to die before we know why we were born. I pray that someone in this house tonight, in a moment when invited, will say, yes, Jesus, I believe you died for me. I don't understand all the religious jargon, but I believe you died for me. Something in this that just rings true. And, and, and though it runs counter to reason, I'm willing to believe that you rose from the dead on the third day. That's how you sent the Holy Spirit to live with me and strengthen me and give me meaning and peace and hope. We pray all that in Jesus' wonderful name.